scene six. Minutes later, after gathering enough courage, I called her, but she was still on the road cruising for her digs. She told me, I'll call you back when at home, which she did. We spoke, with me on the offensive headed to the masculine climax, I thundered, never call me again. It was a callous thing to tell a sweet girl on the phone. But I did not hear her response because our conversation was drowned by old woofers belching out a distorted Bob Marley hit song, No Woman, No Cry. It was wrong to tell her that. It was one of those moments of madness. Silly excuse though, but it's true. With Guinness taking charge, I made a no-brainer decision. I toughened my nerves and headed to Simmer's Bar and Restaurant to sample the asses of the many willing snakes that slither around carrying beer-spiking pills with intentions to incapacitate and strip bare pockets. As usual, the old snakes recognized me, a regular guest in their nest, and we started talking politics. We talked. We lied. We predicted obviously powered by ethanol in our drinks. As we discussed everything under the sun, a piercing pain penetrated my spine. It was unspeakable pain, indescribable pain. The twinge of a mother whose newborn has been stolen by caregivers and sold for a few bottles of whiskey. Then I realized the source of pain. Some drunkard, had opened my notebook and started dedicating another random tramp, the poem I had written but failed to deliver to my date. Again, I fought back tears. I know the pain of failure. Raila Odinga knows the pain of failure. Borussia Dortmund knows the pain of failure. We all know the pain of failure. Last time on case number zero. I feel like I've not done it all. I've not done exactly what Bogonko would have expected me to do for him. If a man had disappeared, I'm sure Bogonko would be writing a story every day. I'm sure he would have a countdown on his website every day for people to give leads, which I've not done myself. disappeared. Basically, while I was still in London, I got telephone messages, text messages from a good mutual friend who said, where is this man proceeding? And initially, I, I sort of dismissed it as, you know, maybe the guy is looking for Bosire, he's not replying to his calls or anything. Then when it got persistent, second day, so I jokingly, I told the guy, what do you think? Do you think I brought him in my suitcase to London? I mean, London is obviously in Nairobi. I must have been among the last people to see him. If Bogonko can disappear, what about you? Less than a thousand people know of his disappearance. What about us? What about me for doing this video? Searching for Bogonko was hampered by a lot of missteps. First, the family didn't go through the basic protocols of finding a missing person. Instead, 
they relied mostly on his friends in high places. There are many reasons as to why people go missing. These reasons are infinite. Some people are made to disappear, others choose to disappear themselves, and things happen to others like accidents that we never get to know about. What's important for us is to nail down possible causes leading to Bokonko's disappearance. In doing so, perhaps we can figure out what happened. Here is what we know. One is that Bogonko's peculiar personality might have landed him in trouble. He might have crossed the wrong person who might have taken matters into their own hands. Two, Bogonko's jackal news was a risk factor in two ways. That through his blog, he created many enemies that frequently retaliated against him. Secondly, as we frequently had through this series, he used it to blackmail his sources or turn them into targets. Three, we also do know that the clouds of the International Criminal Court has been hanging on this disappearance for seven years. Some believe that Bogonko could be an ICC witness and that he is in some form of witness protection program. Others think that through his blog, he released the identity of a witness and because of it, he was disappeared by some interested party. Whatever the case, these are just theories. Some have legs, others don't. Let's explore them one by one. So let's start with the first theory. By his nature, he might have provoked uh, the wrong person resulting to his disappearance. I can see that. Bugonko was abrasive. He would tease and cajole people he just met with no harm intended. But if you did not know him, the obvious reaction was to retaliate. Do you remember Moses, his favorite barman, the one who told us how Bogonko surprised him with a LeBron James book and jersey? Well, even he told us that there were times Bogonko provoked him to a point where he felt the need to retaliate. So, Vincho, did you find any leads in regards to a known enemy or even some concrete evidence that someone might have had a motive to kill him? 
I, I haven't found concrete evidence of a sworn or non-enemy. It's just these random encounters that I've heard from. Uh, Karo Kim Tai interviewed him about uh, him being attacked several times in town and people trying to sue him, but Bogonko was not faced by that. Okay. Um, what about the Jackal News theory? Uh, that because of the nature of his work at Jackal News, he had made enemies. Perhaps he blackmailed the wrong person, or he was about to write an expose on a person who wanted the story killed. Some of the stories he was working on at the time of his disappearance were hit pieces on public figures. Now, we spoke to Carol Kimutai, who interviewed Bogonko around the time he went missing. And she told us Bogonko was writing a piece on Sintenyamai, a former business journalist turned public relation person. On my piece I wrote, he was meant to meet uh, Tichi Nyasani. I can't remember what was going on with her life then. Uh, but yeah, I, I think I mentioned in the story what he, he had mentioned that they were supposed to meet. I don't know if they ever met, if they ever met, uh, but yeah. He did a story, I think. He did a story later. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So that was that was our meeting on that day. I, I think it was inspired by the many things we had spoken about. Um, him calling Cynthia Olivia Pope. I've, I've just seen that uh, the story was. I think the story was in drum. Um, Cynthia had been featured in drum, and I think he had come back uh, and done something around Cynthia. I don't know what he had against her, I don't know. But I also told him, you use very, very, very uh, bad language. This 2015 interview done by the Kenya Television Network, KTN, Cynthia Nyamai is a PR guru, in her own words, a connector of people. She claims to have worked on presidential campaigns in several African countries. Let me just do a very quick profile of who Cynthia is for those who do not know. Well, she is a, K a former KTN business anchor and reporter. Um, she also won the Diageo Business Award for the best upcoming uh, reporter in Africa at that time. That was a, that's a big deal in the business uh, world. She also, she's also a writer for Forbes magazine and she's also, quite impressively, the managing director of Cynthia Nyamai Communications. She sits to talk about her kind of work. I still write uh, once in a while. Uh, one time I, I, I went to Forbes, I called Forbes, I said uh, I'd like to come to your office. I went to the office, I said I want to complain. I've only seen one Kenyan on the cover of Forbes <laughs> uh -huh, magazine. Uh -huh. one, I want to see more Kenyans yeah. and if you want I can write, I'll do it for free. Yeah. So they said, okay, fine, write. Told me i uh, try and get for us Merali. Merali mm -hmm. rarely does interviews. Mm -hmm. I went, I convinced him, and I told him the reason why I'm writing is because I want to inspire Kenyans. Mm -hmm. And I was telling uh, Kenyans that, you know what, uh, don't just start your business in your estate. Uh, think about Kenya, think about Uganda, Tanzania, think about Nigeria. And I was talking about it because when we saw the president uh, come to Nigeria, I mean to Kenya, he came with uh, 500 government officials and businessmen mm -hmm. uh, because they could see the opportunities in Kenya. Yeah. At this time, she says... She was working for a governor in Nigeria, and she's involved in political work, election campaigns, and that sort of thing. She's well-connected. She drops big names that appear to be on her colleagues. When asked about her political work, and specifically how she got there by the news anchor, she says this. 
um, part of which is as a result of you being part of the team that led to Muhammadu Buhari's win. Yes. How did you even start? How did you get to that point where you became part of this team? And it's not in Kenya. It's not even um, it's not Tanzania or you know Uganda. Yeah. It's actually you know Nigeria. At yeah. what point and how did you get into the, uh, to get that opportunity? Really interesting. Uh, for me, my vision and purpose. The reason why God brought me into this earth is to bring Africa together. Mm -hmm. And I always talk about it, bringing Africa together through trade. Mm -hmm. So I I started. I opened up in Nigeria, and then I came to Kenya, and I met with the Nigerian High Commissioner, and I told him, you know what, I really want to see more trade mm -hmm. between Kenya and Nigeria. So I said, uh, let me work for you, and then he told me at the moment we don't actually have a budget. I said it's okay. Mm -hmm. Let me do it for free. Oh, so he told me, okay, fine. We have some investors coming in. Why don't you arrange their meetings? Um, and I, and I did that. Uh, and one of the people who I met then uh, was a governor in, in in Nigeria. And what I didn't realize actually is in Nigeria, governors are quite powerful. Mm -hmm. They're actually the most powerful politicians in Africa. Mm -hmm. And so and and later on, he said, why don't you also work for us? So I went. I started working for them. I worked there for three years. Um, I have a contract. I'll be there for another five years. Really? Yes. I'll Someone might say, why isn't she doing all these wonderful things in Kenya? Why uh -huh. choose to go to Nigeria? Kenya has the same equal opportunities. I also still have my office here in Kenya. Um, don't forget also in the last election, I also did work for TNA. Mm -hmm. That right there is exactly the cause of a public spat between her and Bugongo. Here is what happened. Bugonko was asked by her claim that she worked on Kenya's political campaign of 2013, which led to the election of Kenya's current president, Uhuru Kenyatta. He had worked in the campaign, and he didn't meet Cynthia in the campaign secretariat at all. He was of the opinion that Cynthia Nyamai was making up all these things to prop herself up. And so, Bogonko went to war, armed with his brutal writing skills, and his creation, his blog, The Jackal News. He'd write about three hit pieces on Cynthia. He wasn't holding back. He called her names and accused her of so many things. All these three articles were written between August 13th and September 3rd, 2013. In one article, he names several prominent Kenyans and alludes to the fact that they were having some sort of sexual relations with Cynthia, explaining that that's how she gets to find her way in Kenya's boardrooms. These men are CEOs and leaders of various corporations. He divulges their names and the places they allegedly took Cynthia Nyamai to. It is descriptively written with a punch of a Bogonko Bosire who was angry and on some sort of a personal crusade to correct some record. From interviewing people who worked for the Jubilee campaign and accessing the Jubilee campaign payroll, we have ascertained that Cynthia Nyamai did not work for the Jubilee campaign. The reason why we go into the Cynthia Nyamai story is that it has a string that cuts across Jackal News stories that might have put his life in danger. Bogonko did not only attack Cynthia, he attacked everyone around her. He relentlessly went after her. Headline after headline is all about Cynthia. And James, you're right. Bogonko was a crusader, and his final crusade was to expose Cynthia Nyamai, 
which meant also exposing powerful men around her as collateral. As much as Cynthia never worked for Jubilee, there are several stories of Bogonko calling and blackmailing people, threatening to publish clandestine articles about them. Most of these people were his friends. In one of his Cynthia Nyamai article, Bogonko acknowledges just as much. He says that he was pathologically vicious to his friends more than his enemies, who were very many in this town. One such friend is Dennis Onsarigo. Um, there's a time he called me and he said, I want to write a story about you and some woman in, in the media house. And I think you're having an affair with her. So I told him, I dare you go write it. And let's see whether you can be alive tomorrow. And, 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 and he joked about it. He said, uh, let me try and get in touch with her. If I get her comment, then I'll do the story. I told him, fine, just go ahead. And I think he called the lady. The lady gave him a comment. He told him, yes, we are having an affair, go write it. So I think he was stuck somewhere. I mean, people cannot just agree. Um, I'm having an affair with some girl in the media house. It's shocking. I'm, I'm one man who believes that um, Bogonko's disappearance was not an act. It was not a natural act. Um, there was a human hand involved in it. We'll tell you we... And, and again, he told me, we'll win this election with six million votes. And again, they won the election with six million votes. So Bobonko might have come across information or might have been a bad contact somewhere. That is my gut feeling. So when I remember telling him that you go right and let's see if you'll be alive tomorrow, then now we can't tell where Bobonko is. We can't tell whether Bobonko is alive or dead. It's a very, very disturbing place to find yourself in. Papu, his mentor, friend, and proprietor of Bogonko's favorite bar, confirmed that, indeed, he had crossed some people. The social uh, page he had started, uh, Jackal News, I know he did ruffle quite a few feathers. And he had trodden on some toes and upset certain people. So I don't know if it could be any link to that, or if, if it was a normal crime thing. I mean, again, he used to take his chances being out on the streets late. He was never worried about anything. So very difficult to speculate what could have happened. Did you have any enemies? Not any enemies that I know, uh, uh, particular enemies. But like I say, he had upset some people I know. Uh, and Busiria was a character like that. Uh, even, even in a normal course of an evening at a bar, he could easily upset someone. Just by the manner, the way he spoke and all. So, and it's only a lot of people accepted him only when they got to know him. Because initially I got that from a lot of people at, at Porta House. That, oh, this guy, you really shouldn't be letting him in. He's disruptive, he's abusive when he's drunk. Uh, but that, I mean, that that's simple bad thing. That's nothing serious like to make a man disappear. That could, uh, disappearance could be linked to some story or something he was on to, something he was covering or someone didn't like something. And then, there is the story that Itumbi said he was chasing on his last days. Who is Esther? The woman who contacted him wanting to spill the beans about a sitting senator. Could he have made an enemy with a politician? One particular story that he kept complaining about in his last days to his disappearance and saying he must fix that story and the, and the character in the story kept calling him back. We don't mention names, but the, 
the particular story involved a sitting MP and uh, and a, a lady called Esther who apparently had uh, gotten pregnant and was uh, had given had, had given uh, had actually uh, had actually gone to, a, to uh, was already admitted to labor ward and uh, had given a story that she had been abandoned so i know that particular story he delayed it for like three days but he kept saying justice must be done and the story must be told nothing can stop the story so i know that that was one of the major stories that he complained about during his last days as previously mentioned on the podcast the politician that itumbi insinuates Bogonko was writing an expose on reached out to us. He had a different version of events. Bogonko and he were acquaintances. The senator told us that on Thursday, the 19th of September 2013, Bogonko visited his office in Parliament Building. The senator tells us that Bogonko was on the run and he showed him messages from a sitting judge. The senator describes Bogonko as being drunk but lucid. He told him that he had disclosed the names of an ICC witness and that he was being followed by two guys. Bogonko was not sure if the two incidents were related. Here's the thing. The senator's version of events have been corroborated by Bogonko's cousin, Fidelis. So, the Dennis Itumbi version unless he provides more details, appears to be yet another creation. Vincho, we are now left with the ICC theories. Do they hold water? Before we explore the ICC theories, I'd like to bring up an idea fronted by Dennis Onsarigo. Sometimes, people don't tell you what you're working on. Um, but when you realize what you're working on, or the magnitude of what you're working on and you start backing off or start asking questions then they have to get rid of you that's how it works i have learned from friends who work for instance for the police people learn to keep quiet you do some dirty job you keep quiet it's none of your business you don't go talking about you don't tell your wife you don't tell your friends that's why when some people die you go asking family members, what is it he might have known? They tell you nothing. He didn't tell us anything. If Bogonko Bosire had this information that is so crucial to either the state or other individuals, then he should be alive and out here, being protected like some fellas I've seen. Okay. But maybe Bogonko Bosire came across information. There is no possible to come across. Okay, like he was writing stories for a nefarious party and the deal went sour? Um, more like he was given material to write a story and then halfway through writing it, he made a realization that the story could cost people's lives and then he might have wanted to back out. But then it was too late. We do know for sure that Bogonko had this fighting for the weak mantra. It is contradictory. But humans can have a sharp contrast. True. Remember, even though Bogonko was vicious, he was not malicious. His intention was always to provoke, but not cause harm. He could attack and defend his friends with the same tenacity. Can we now explore the ICC theories? The first one that 
his silencing is linked to him outing an anonymous witness at the International Criminal Court during the trial of President Uhuru Kenyatta and his deputy. The reason why this theory persists is that besides the senator, Bugonko had confided to friends and colleagues that ICC was going hard on him. His exact words per Itumbi were Ikoshida Manyata, which translates to this trouble at home. Muhammad Ali figures Bugonko's troubles began with the ICC stories. Where I'm sitting, I think Bugonko's trouble started when uh, he named, I don't know if you saw his blog when he said that uh, uh, he mentioned the ICC witness who appeared on TV giving evidence. I think that's when his problem started. The moment he named the witness is the moment Bogonko's story started, that Bogonko is missing. I don't know, I, I'm not a police officer, I, I, but I feel as a journalist who's been doing crime and investigation for so long, the moment that thing happened, the moment the witness was mentioned is when Bogonko, you know, Bogonko's life became miserable because he went uh, underground, nobody knew of what was going on. So I think, I think the problem started there. We have since established that the identification of the ICC witness happened on the 17th of September 2013. Bogonko disappeared that weekend of September 21st. In order for ICC to take someone for questioning, they'd first contact the government of Kenya and demand that person be summoned for questioning. Perhaps this is why the sitting judges warned Bogongo. From the texts we have seen from the sitting judge and talking to dozens of other people, we can confirm that at least two senior judges reached out to Bogongo and warned him about his writings on ICC. They were worried that he was getting too invested in this story. ICC during this time had started sending summons and arrest warrants. The judges didn't want their friend to end up at ICC as a criminal who subverted justice. So to your question, why were these two judges really interested in Bogonko? Well, remember early in the episode where we told you about Porterhouse? Yeah, that bar place, uh, Kenya's who and who patronized? Yes. Bogonko was good friends with these people and many others in high places. The second ICC theory is that Bogonko was in witness protection, that perhaps the ICC pressured him to squeal on the people that gave him the information on the ICC witnesses. Well, that information could only have come from the government or the defense team. In this case, the government was on trial. So really, the information could only have come from the government of Kenya. Now, if Bogongo had revealed that information, then he would have automatically been taken into witness protection. Journalist Tom Maliti, Bogongo's friend and colleague who covered Kenyan ICC stories, is skeptical that Bogongo was ever in witness protection. In covering the ICC process, it was clear to him that the ICC did not do a good job in protecting witnesses. And very few people 
were willing to stay in the protection program. It is possible that be a witness uh, some protective uh, regime at the International Criminal Court, but if that is the case, then he would be one of the most disciplined witness uh, under a protection uh, program. Because the challenge of being a witness uh, under protection is the discipline of keeping away from people you know, keeping away from the things you know, and in essence, rebooting your life. Call it hard reboot. You clear and clear out everything. And Bogonko being who he is, uh, at least a Bogonko I know, as much as he may be, he may be reserved, he would, not, he would not want to keep away from people. We asked Tom if there's a way of finding out if a person is in the ICC Witness Protection Program. If the protection program of the International Criminal Court is, is working the way it's supposed to work, there is no way for you to find out. The only way you'd be able to find out is if this particular individual reaches out to you and says, hi. Uh, this is so and so. Um, just you know, sending you a text message. I'm calling or whatever it is. However, they, however they choose to communicate with, with you, um, just to say hello, you know, kind of thing. That's it. But as the Kenya case is proved, um, that protection program had uh, significant weaknesses. And in fact, more recently, the Office of the Prosecutor commissioned a study of uh, the Kenya cases. Um, especially the early stages of the investigation into the Kenya cases and the initial uh, preparation for trial, um, the pre-trial phase particularly. So three experts, some of them have, who had worked at the Office of the Prosecutor in, at the ICC, uh, some who had worked as prosecutors elsewhere, interviewed uh, 30 current and former staff members of the Office of the Prosecutor. And one of the things they did conclude was that the International Criminal Court at the office of the prosecutor, as well as the registrar's office, because the registrar's office is one that runs the protection program, had underestimated the challenges that they would face in terms of re requirements for protecting witnesses, which they said is one of the reasons why eventually these witnesses, many of them, were found out by individuals who are supporters of the people facing cases at the ICC and were either um, corrupted, attempts were made to corrupt them, or uh, more intimidated. The ICC Witness Protection Program is complicated and there is no indication that Bogonko Bosire is in the program. Mencho, are these all the theories that we're working with? Are there any other theories that you could not substantiate? In the early days, it was rumored that Bogonko had left the country and was living in Zimbabwe on the government's dime. The countries changed from time to time, but the theory stayed the same. Though comforting, this was the least plausible theory. It was shot down by many. I don't buy that theory. I think that if someone wanted to silence Bogonko, they could have easily silenced him. He was not a, a, a man of uh, great morals as far as I knew him. Um, he, he would happy go with where the wind blows and whatever he wanted to do. So I think that whatever happened to Bogonko is something really serious. Bogonko was smart. Bogonko can call and say that I'm in trouble. Even if he was kidnapped, Bogonko can look for a way to make sure that he talks to us. He knows people's numbers often. Facebook, social media, Twitter, Bogonko knows everything. He's a journalist, he's so smart, he'll reach us. But if you see Bogonko is unable to reach us, 
then the fellas are much smarter than the Bongo. It is very hard to disappear someone, to disappear someone. It's very, very hard. It's like carrying a dead body. It's a very heavy thing to do. So you're not disappearing someone who is not alive. You're disappearing someone who is alive. So unless you have the resources and a place to place him, then it is a very tedious exercise to do. People don't just disappear. Kenya is a very small country. People don't just disappear. People are forced to disappear. And Bogunko has been forced to disappear. And then there's the idea, the thing that I don't want to think about. But I must admit that there's a possibility that Bogonko is dead. Whatever the circumstances. Everyone I interviewed admitted that this thought had crossed their mind. If I look at the duration, the span, I think it's too late. I think Bogonko is no more. I think Bogonko is not alive. They killed him. Whoever gave him the job killed him. I asked Itumbi the same question that we all have been asking ourselves. What do you think happened to Bogonko? I've thought that someone took him, killed him, and buried him in a place. So he's under some sand somewhere. I've also thought of him being in a capital somewhere in the world, sitting and watching all of us make a fuss about him and him writing a blog that I believe he'll come back and publish and it will be a major hit. I've actually envisioned him somewhere writing every day about those moments and then coming up with this blockbuster blog with a daily basis on what happened, how we all forgot updating about him year after year. He, deep down me, despite that feeling that he could have been buried somewhere by someone, deep down me I feel Bogonko is alive somewhere, watching over all of us. And I have this feeling that one day we will wake up to a major block. There are so many things that went wrong in the efforts of finding Bogonko Bosire. We talked to Dimas Kiprono, who's a human rights lawyer at Amnesty International. He told us that justice is almost impossible if the family does not have means. Now, the process of tracing a loved one who is lost is complex and almost impossible. The ideal situation, the, an officer is, uh, is assigned to a case, and that officer is supposed to keep in touch with the complainants to inform them of where any development in the case or, or lack of thereof. But the reality on the ground is that uh, we, ha we usually have a lot of uh, transfers so that um, the person who might have been allocated the case is no longer in that police station, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So it's a it's a customer care challenge uh, that needs to be that needs to be addressed. Uh, and uh, you'd find that uh, other agencies, such as the IPOA or the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, usually have timelines in, in terms of certain days whereby a complaint needs needs to be reappraised or the client needs to be updated. Uh, but with the National Police Service, you find that I think, first of all, the volume of cases is so large that uh, this might not happen all the time. When we started covering this story, it was a search by friends looking for another friend. We didn't realize that going missing in Kenya happens 
way too often than we imagine. For instance, another human rights lawyer, Emma Muma, tells us just one organization in Kenya, Missing Voices, records between 500 to 600 children who go missing in Nairobi alone every year. There is no data and no government institution, including the police, that tracks missing persons. In fact, Kenya has no law governing missing persons. And so clearly, there is a need for police reform. We need to institute a system that makes police work easier to serve all Kenyans. Once we have the policy in place, we need to stamp out corruption. Mohamed Ali said that CID is for the rich. In this case, Bogonko, though influential, was not rich enough to warrant a satisfactory investigation. If you ask me honestly, this is my opinion. We don't have CID. We have extortionists in this country. They don't help us. They don't serve Kenyans. They serve the people with the money. It's very painful that 98% are very poor. So they will only serve the 2% with the money. So if you tell me about a CID case, how many cases have been piled there? Mose Meshake Bay, the ICC witness, you know, from Eldoret to uh, Sabo Forest, murdered. Kwekwe Mondaza, the 16-year-old girl who was shot dead by police in uh, Mombasa. Another 16-year-old girl was shot dead by police in, uh, in Thika. Yeah? Let's talk of uh, the pastor Kanyari. Let's talk of terrorism. Let's talk of everything that has been reported. Let's talk of Dr. Mugo Wairimu, caught on camera. There is nothing that is going to be done because it's a poor person who is reporting. But when hyenas, robbers, report to the CID, action is being taken immediately. So if you ask me whether we have CID, I'll tell you, I don't even know if they exist in this, in this country. There were several things that went wrong in looking for Bogonko. I would like to highlight them so that other people do not make the same mistakes. Number one. The family assumed that because Bogonko was popular enough, there was no need to provide his picture to the police. And I think they should have provided the picture, even though it felt futile and that the police were giving them a runaround. Number two, Bogonko's friends did a disservice to the family by screaming and shouting of his missing online and not enough in real life. The online activity to find Bogonko gave the family a false sense of something happening. This made them overlook simple strategies like making radio announcements, buying missing persons ads in newspapers, and posting his face all over South B, Nairobi CBD, Sigona, and all the places that he was last seen. Number three, everyone, the family, and his friends relied too much on one person, Dennis Itumbi. And this speaks to the lack of trust in the government of Kenya. Dennis Itumbi is not trained to investigate missing persons. He should not have released that statement to the public. He should have gone to the police with information that he had and let them formulate a statement that would have been true without the emotion. Number four, I don't think the CID did enough. For example, no one interviewed by this podcast 
has ever been interviewed by the CID officers assigned to the case. They did not visit the house where Bogonko lived. They did not talk to his neighbors and search for clues. They did not interrogate Fidel Kiago, the cousin who lived with Bogonko at the time. If they had, they could have found out crucial information that Fidelis told me. As a by the way, just after I had finished interviewing him. There's something I've forgotten to tell you, if I add on it. But it was just a, it was a rumor. Sijikani rumor or it's a fact. Someday, kuna, there is there is a, a neighbor next to us, Alkwa. There were two guys, Alkwa student, to a Kenya poly. So, when I, I informed that guy that Bogonko is... So this is somebody who social media that is he went missing so like me so sometimes home late to that student. There's a day I met like there were four like four gunmen get up specifically the the story like four game the midnight maybe but so miss quite take that story seriously because mashabogongo na ijua and finally, the CID did not talk to the woman that Bogonko visited on his last weekend before he went missing. They did not talk to his brother-in-law, who is the one person we know, like, was the last person to see him on the Friday. And I agree with you that there needs to be reforms in our justice system. I'd go further and advocate for resource mobilization and sharing. There needs to be a central database for missing persons that can be accessed by all police stations so that if someone goes missing in Nairobi and an unclaimed body shows up in Naivasha, Naivasha police can check the database to see if the body fits the profile before contacting family. Thank you, Vincho, for pointing out what went wrong in the investigation of Bogonko Bosire. I would add that there is a need to educate the public on what to do when your person goes missing. People have a tendency to go to morgues instead of police stations. Now, this stems from lack of trust in our institutions, and building trust takes leadership. Bogonko's story proves that we should all care when someone's human rights are violated. Now, if Bogonko, a well-known journalist who either went to school or was friends, with half the journalists working in Kenya today can go missing without a trace? What about people with no money or influence? Bogonko was not the first person to go missing, nor was he the last. But we live in a culture which moves on as though this is okay. It is not. Every human life is valuable. We should care when people go missing, whether we know them or not. This began as a mystery, 
and unfortunately, it remains as one. This case cannot be concluded until Bogonko Bosire is found dead or alive. Next time on Case Number Zero. His disappearance has caused a lot of trouble to the family, especially my parents. As I'm speaking now, my dad, they are talking about schizophrenia, they are talking about dementia, but he's asking me where is my son. My sister, I should know what to tell him. Case number zero is hosted by me, James Smart. Additional reporting, Vinchon Chogu. Production house, Supersonic Africa. Sound engineer, Muna Chuba. Video editor, Sharon Ongayo. Theme music, Brian Sigu. Voice artist, Yafesi Musoke. Producers, Vinchon Chogu and James Smart. Consultant to producers, Abdullahi Boru, impact producer, May Lebo, script consultants, Chachi Lotieno, and Monica Ndogo. Kimani Nidago, Osiepeniaro Duto, Omiyo Apari Sechete. Sunny, <laughs> feel.